You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to Understanding Sin and Evil. I am back from my hiatus, and I would like to welcome all the new listeners who have joined from Nehemiah's blog. Welcome. In this episode, we will continue with our exploration of satanic figures in Second Temple texts. Now, when I say satanic figures, I mean a central demon, one central demon, not a group of demons, as in the development of the Watcher's myth, one central demon who was the main source of evil. In our last episode, we discussed where Satan can be found in the Bible, and we saw that Satan does not seem to emerge as a character until works which date to the Second Temple period or are generally thought to date to the Second Temple period. We saw how the word Satan is used in the Bible, rather Satan is used in the Bible to mean adversary, including even good angels who can be sent by God to be adversaries to the wicked or to prevent wicked acts. And that's how the angel who opposes Bilam can be a Satan. In the book of Kings, we saw that the word Satan was used to refer to human kings who were essentially set up by God to act as adversaries to Shlomo, King Solomon. We saw that in the Psalms as well, the word Satan is used for human evil adversaries. But in this case, they're not sent by God anymore. In the Psalms, the Satan can mean human, a human evil opponent, not sent by God. And the psalmist is asking that these characters, these people who are called a Satan, that they be prevented and punished. But in the book of Chronicles, we saw a shift in how the word Satan is used and in how the concept of demonic adversary starts to be useful. So in the retelling of the David story that's originally in the book of Samuel and when it's retold in the book of Chronicles, right, in, in the place where David is tempted to make a horrible misstep by counting Israel, a Satan is substituted for God. So in other words, in the book of Samuel, in Shmuel, God incites David to do it. And in the book of Chronicles, it is a Satan. In the book of Zechariah, the Satan, and here we actually have the Satan, not just a Satan, the Satan is seen acting as a heavenly accuser, possibly, against Jehoshua the high priest. So he's fulfilling a heavenly role there in accusing Yoshua. However, this Satan, the Satan is admonished by God using God's own name in an incantation with formulaic language in a st- what was probably a standard indication for kind of expelling a demon. Finally, we discussed the special case of the introduction to Eov, to Job which looks like an introduction that was added in the Second Temple period to a much earlier work in order to help us understand why all these horrible things are happening to Job. Now, I'd like to make an aside before I begin. In my last episode, I talked about the academic idea that we can separate the beginning and conclusion of Job from the middle, let's say from the body of Job. Now, of course, this is not the traditional view, obviously not in Christianity and certainly not in Judaism. In general, the traditional view will always look at a book as a single complete work. Even academically, and even for someone who chronologically would separate 
the beginning and conclusion of Job from the body of the book, there's still meaning in what we call the whole text. In other words, the whole book beginning to end. That's why there's an entire approach in academia called whole text analysis. But what we need to ask whether we're approaching a work in its entirety or as an addition to a book is why would someone want a satanic figure in this book? What problem is solved by having a demonic or satanic figure here? In the book of Job, this is a particularly interesting question because the presence of Satan or Satan is a solution, as it were, to the problem of why bad things happen to good people. Thanks to the introduction to the book of Job, we know that Job didn't deserve what happened to him. Eov didn't deserve anything. It was a test from God. And why would God test someone in that way? Well, the Satan instigated the test. Why did the Satan instigate, instigate the test, this test of a very righteous person? Well, because he's the Satan. He's evil. The problem is that for us, the modern readers, this introduction presents more problems than it solves. Because how can you say that God is influenced by Satan, right? How can, why is God listening to the Satan? How does that solve anything? The answer is that, of course, it does solve the initial problem of why bad things happen to good people, or in this case, at least why bad things happen to Eve. And for the book's original audience, that is the original intended audience of the introduction to Eve, we can pretty safely assume that this audience was not as bothered by the idea of God being influenced by the Satan, who was a member of the divine court. Now, I'd like to remind you here that we think very differently from how the ancients thought, and what bothers us did not necessarily bother them. The ideas that bother us, the questions we have, change from generation to generation. And we can already see that in Second Temple interpretation of the Bible, where there's an attempt to fix, quote unquote, the problems of the Bible, sometimes even in the earlier Second Temple period, by changing the text itself. And I discussed that a little when I was talking about scripture and versions of scripture. By the way, the fact that these central questions change from generation to generation is also the reason why children or teenagers, let's say, so frequently see the previous generation as out of touch with the real problems of life. The questions they're, act, they're asking have shifted. We see that in Second Temple literature also, that the current generation in these writings bemoans the fact that the previous generation is blind. And somehow only the new generation has had its eyes opened. Right? We, we see that in, in different books written in this period. But let's go back to our topic now. So in the introduction to Eov, God seems to be somehow influenced by Satan. At least he listens to his ideas and he causes Eov's trials. But in the rewriting of Samuel that we have, of Shmuel that we have in the book of Chronicles, which to remind you was written at the beginning of the Second Temple period, everyone agrees on that, um, we're simply substituting a Satan, a demonic adversary for God. God doesn't instigate an evil or mistaken activity on the part of David. It is a Satan. This is an attempt to fix the account in the book of Shmuel of Samuel. So that's why we have a Satan there. God didn't cause this action of David's, which in its turn caused evil. It was a Satan. Now that we are moving on to later Second Temple texts, in particular in this episode, we're moving on to Jubilees. We are not going to stop asking this question. 
namely the question of why do we have this satanic figure here? What problem does the satanic figure solve for the audience of the time? For each demonic figure we encounter, so that would be Mastema in this episode and Belial in the next episode, we're going to ask, why is the author bringing in this character here? What problem does this character solve or simplify? Now, what is interesting is that in the second temple text that we'll discuss today, the name Satan is never used as a proper name. And that's true, of course, in most of the texts of the Hebrew Bible as well that we discussed last week or last episode. These guys are not Satan, okay? The Mastema, Blial, they're not, they're not called, their name isn't Satan. They're called a Satan. So essentially, it looks like in this period, though Satan, as it were, is becoming a character in his own right, sometimes called Blial, sometimes called Mastema, and each of these has very specific features of his own. Blial and Mastema are not identical. But again, Although there is an idea of a central satanic figure, the people who are writing the text we will discuss still understand the word Satan to mean adversary. But now Satan means a demonic adversary, not just any adversary. So I'd like to thank Chris, actually, for asking the question that spurred this explanation. Keep those questions coming. Uh, As I mentioned uh, earlier, today I'm going to talk about the character Mastema, in the Book of Jubilees. I'm addressing Mastema before we talk about Blial in the next episode because we discussed Mastema before when we explored the Watchers in the Book of Jubilees. And now we have an opportunity to kind of flesh out his character, as it were. So who is Mastema? Mastema is the main villain, the main baddie in the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees, as my regular listeners know, is an example of rewritten Bible from the Second Temple period, around, let's say, 160, 167 BC, 167, 160 BC. It is a retelling of Breshit, of Genesis, and part of Shmot, Exodus. And it describes itself as a secret book handed alongside the Torah to Moshe by the angels. And it's narrated, actually, by the angels. So that's why it only includes part of Shmot, because the book is handed to Moshe at Sinai, the narrative has to end at Sinai. Although, of course, it includes apocalyptic predictions of the future, which are very important, at least to the author and to the readers. The book itself dates more or less the Hasmonean Revolt, but it's a highly edited work. So you can see that pieces are brought in from different sources, and some may have been added to later, like uh, the... the uh, mention of Blial in the beginning, which we're going to be talking about next episode. So it's called the Book of Jubilees because it recounts the history of the world in weeks, which means sets of seven years, essentially sets of Shemitah years, and in Jubilees, which are seven times seven years, right? And 50th year. So that in a Jubilee includes seven weeks. It was written in Hebrew. It was then translated into Greek and then translated into, into Ethiopic. And like the Book of Enoch, it survived in its entirety only because it came, became part of the official scripture of the Ethiopian church. That's how we have the whole book today. Even though we have found fragments in Hebrew or Qumran, we do have a little bit in Greek. Um, and Qumran members actually held the Book of Jubilees in very high regard. And, and at least one place they quoted it as authoritative. We'll talk about that a little in the next episode. 
In the Book of Jubilees, Mastema fulfills a function that is almost exactly how we would think of Satan today if Satan were given a whole host of Watcher's descendants to command. Just to remind you, and for those of you who have not listened to the Watcher's episodes, Maslema first appears on the scene when Noach's grandchildren begin to sin. Noach knows that this is because the demon spirits who have descended from the Watchers, and I'm not going to fill in too much here, you need to listen to the Watcher's episodes, but because Noach knows that they're sinning because of these evil spirits among them, he asks God to imprison these spirits. He says, don't let them hurt my grandchildren. And we're, that's what we're expecting to happen for God to imprison all these evil spirits. But there's a sudden shift. So I'm reading now from Jubilees chapter 10, starting with verse one. During the third week of this Jubilee, so that's the third set of seven years within this 50 year period in this place in the Jubilees chronology, uh, it's sometime between 1583 and 1589 from the creation of the world. So during this week, Impure demons began to mislead Noah's grandchildren to make them act foolishly and to destroy them. Now, at least two of those items uh, to mislead and to make them act foolishly uh, indicate sin, and perhaps to destroy them also means to destroy them through sin. So they're causing the impure demons are misleading Noah's children. They're causing them to sin. Then Noah's sons came to their father Noah and told him about the demons who were misleading blinding and killing his grandchildren. So again, blinding here indicates making them blind to what is a sin or not, i.e. misleading them and causing them to sin. He prayed before the Lord his God and said, God of the spirits which are in all animate beings, you who have shown kindness to me, saved me and my sons from the flood waters and did not make me perish as you did to the people meant for destruction. Because your mercy for me has been large and your kindness to me has been great, may your mercy be lifted over the children of your children and may the wicked spirits not rule them in order to destroy them from the earth. Okay, that's what the wicked spirits are doing. They're trying to rule them, i.e. make them sin and destroy them from the earth. Now you bless me and my children, Noah says, so that we may increase, become numerous and fill the earth. And if we recall, that was a commandment that was actually given to they're supposed to fill the earth. Um, you know how your watchers, the fathers of these spirits have acted during my lifetime. As for these spirits who have remained alive, imprison them and hold them captive in the place of judgment. May they not cause destruction among your servant's sons, my God, for they are savage and were created for the purpose of destroying. May they not rule the spirits of the living for you alone know their punishment. And may they not have power over the sons of the righteous from now and forevermore. Then our God, this is the angel speaking here, saying, then our God told us, the angels, to tie up each one. Okay, now, here comes Mastema. When Mastema, the leader of the spirits, came, he said, Lord Creator, leave some of them, that is, some of the watchers, descendants, or spirits, before me. Let them listen to me and do everything that I tell them, because if none of them is left for me, I shall not be able to exercise the authority of my will among mankind. For they are meant for the purposes of destroying and misleading before my punishment because the evil of mankind is great. Then he, namely God, said that a tenth of them should be left before him while he would make nine parts descend to the place of judgment. He, again, God, told one of us, that is one of the angels, that we should teach Noah all their medicines because he, God, knew that they would neither conduct themselves properly nor fight fairly. In other words, the demons aren't going to fight fairly, so people had better know about medicine. 
We acted in accord with his entire command. All of the evil ones who were savage, we tied up in the place of judgment, while we left a tenth of them to exercise power on the earth before the Satan. And here the word Satan is actually used in the Ethiopic, and it says Satan, right? They simply transcribe the Hebrew word Satan. So they're calling Mastema the Satan to describe him. That's, that's what he is. He's his he's kind of a uh, demonic adversary. We told Noah all the medicines for their diseases with their deceptions so that he could cure them by means of the earth's plants. And Noah writes it down and he gives it to shame. So at least now they have medicine, which will help protect them from the harm that these demons will apparently try to do. And of course, that seems to be the physical harm. They, they receive protection now, at least against the physical harm that one tenth of the spirits that are left are going to do. Now, I just want to note here that this is the first time Astema has appeared in the Book of Jubilees. In the book of Jubilees, we've been through all the stories of Genesis, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, et cetera, et cetera. And actually the Jubilees take on those stories is pretty interesting, but I don't have time to go into them here. Um, no satanic figure until this moment. We've had the angelic leaders who did wrong by mating with human women. We've had the chaotic demon descendants of the Watchers, but we haven't seen a guy like this. So where has Mastema been since the beginning of creation? The answer is that he's nowhere until the author needs him. Why does the author need him? This is what I discussed in my Watchers and Jubilees episode. The book of Jubilees uses the descendants of the Watchers to explain why bad things happen to good people and especially why people want to sin. But there's a problem. These creatures seem to exist outside the divine order. In other words, they, they were created by rebellion and now they exist outside the divine order. So we bring them back into the divine order by putting them under the angel Mastema. Mastema is an angel. He's part of the divine court. And yet he has the job of punishing evildoers. And now he will command these evil spirits, both punishing people and causing them to sin. Now we're going to see what the punishing people, it, it kind of disappears. But we're going to talk about that later. As I've noted before, while in the Ethiopic translation, Mastema is treated as the name of the angel, it's very possible that it was originally meant to simply mean angel of hostility. Malacha Mastema, angel of the angel of hostility. Mastema is a word that appears in the Bible, in the book of Hosea, uh, specifically Hosea chapter 9, meaning hostility or animosity. So the prophet suffers Mastema, hostility against him in these verses. It's very possible that this name was also chosen for this angel, who seems to fulfill a very similar role to that of the Satan in Eov, because Mastema has a root that is a bit similar to Satan. Mastema has the root Sintet Mem, and Satan has the root Sintet Nun. So let's take a closer look at Mastema's job, and I'm going to reread re chapter 10, verse 8. When Mastema, the leader of the spirits, came, he said, Lord Creator, leave some of them before me. Let them listen to me and do everything that I tell them. Because if none of them is left for me, I shall not be able to exercise the authority of my will among mankind. For they are meant for the purposes of destroying and misleading before my punishment because the evil of mankind is great. Now, while this may seem a fairly straightforward description for Mastema, namely, that he commands these forces for destroying and misleading so that can, he can work his will among people and especially punish the evil, the rest of the book doesn't just have Mastema punish evildoers. In fact, that doesn't seem to be much of what he does at all. This brings me to an important point about Second Temple literature in particular and ancient literature in general. 
We modern readers frequently want everything to be consistent. We expect an author to always believe the same thing, not to have any contradictory beliefs or in a book, no contradictory passages. We use the same approach when we look at characters in ancient literature. So we think that if Mastema is considered to be part of the angelic court in one place, he shouldn't be portrayed as a random doer of evil somewhere else in the same book. Well, tough. That's not how ancient literature works. And in fact, in my opinion, we should recognize that even when it comes to modern literature, we should still allow people to hold complex and even legitimately contradictory beliefs. We need to recognize that people... And their beliefs are complex. They are not simplistic and they are not always consistent. But back to our topic. Remember that we considered why an ancient author would want to insert a satanic figure into a book or even into a belief system. And we looked at the problems such a figure solves. Bad things happening to good people and the origin of generally good people's desire to sin. In particular, if a reader thinks of himself as righteous, he wants to know, Why do I feel this compulsion to sin? Why do I even sometimes sin myself? A satanic figure presents an answer. At the same time, a central evil figure, like Satan, for example, presents a problem with believing in an omnipotent God. If God is so powerful, why doesn't he just wipe out Satan? And if God is super powerful, then does the existence of a satanic figure somehow limit God's benevolence. So then we have new problems we need to answer. Okay, so how does the book of Jubilees answer these questions and solve these problems? So in fact, in the book of Jubilees, Mastema is used very much in the same way that the Satan was used when Chronicles has him cause King David's mistake in counting the people. The same way that the book of Chronicles fixes the problem of God apparently causing this mistake. The book of Jubilees fixes the problem of God's apparent attack of Moshe in Shemot in Exodus 4.24-26. In Jubilees 48, it's Mastema who is behind what's frequently called the bloody bridegroom incident in Shemot. Now, in, in the Jubilees retelling, it's just the, it just says the attack on Moshe's way in the desert, but we know what it's referring to. So the, the Jubilees account Um, skips almost all the interesting characteristics of that attack. It simply says, you know that it was Mastema who attacked you. They're talking to Moshe. Similarly, in Jubilees 48, verse 9, it is Mastema who enables the Egyptian sorcerer's magic, uh, which they do in Shemot, right, in chapter 7 and 8. The question there, the question on Shemot is, how can Paro's magicians do real magic? How can they copy Moshe's tricks once he shows them to him? Well, how can they do them? The answer that Jubilees proposes is, of course, that Mastema helped them out. In the same chapter, Mastema encourages the Egyptians to pursue the Israelites. So the, the fact that the Egyptians keep chasing the Israelites to their death, to their own death, is God has a hand in it, but Mastema was also involved. So it's not just the fault of God hardening their hearts. So the way Mastema is described in this passage or what they do with Mastema is almost funny. I'll, I'll read it to you. I'm reading from 4815. On the 14th day, the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th, the prince of Mastema was bound and locked up behind the Israelites so that he could not accuse them. And I'm going to come back to that later. On the 19th day, we released them. 
apparently referring to the demonic spirits under Master Mask Command, but it isn't absolutely clear. So on the 19th day, we released them so that they could help the Egyptians and pursue the Israelites. He stiffened their resolve and made them stubborn. That's apparently Mastema. But then, then it says, they were made stubborn by the Lord our God so that he could strike the Egyptians and throw them into the sea. So you have this kind of dual stubbornness. On the 14th day, we bound him, that is Mastema, so that he could not accuse the Israelites on the day when they were requesting utensils and clothing from the Egyptians. I just want to remind you that it's angels speaking here. So they're the ones who are binding and releasing Mastema whenever they need him or want to prevent him. So he, they bind him on the 14th day so that he could not accuse the Israelites on the day when they were requesting utensils and clothing from the Egyptians, utensils of silver, utensils of gold, and utensils of bronze, and so that they could plunder the Egyptians in return for the fact that they were made to work when they enslaved them by force. We, the angels, did not bring the Israelites out of Egypt empty-handed. There are several important things to note in this passage. First, Mastema can be released and he can be bound. He's essentially released to move the Egyptians along. And if we want to be cynical here, he's released when the author needs him to solve a theological problem, like how could God harden the Egyptians' hearts and make them chase them into the Red Sea, ending in their deaths. So Mastema, so we have need the involvement of Mastema in that. And then he's bound when he needs to be contained. Second, we also see here an example of something in the Hebrew Bible which becomes a theological problem for a later audience. So the initial audience of the Hebrew Bible, apparently one would assume did not have any problem with God telling the Israelites to quote, borrow unquote, valuable items from the Egyptians. Remember they borrow them. They know they'll never return them. The Egyptians one assumes is expe- are expecting them to return them. And this is at the commandment of God. So of course, later commentators explain that this is meant to pay back the Israelites for their slavery but that is not explicit in the biblical text. But here in Jubilees, first of all, it's angels, not God, who tell the Israelites to borrow the expensive items. And they explicitly tell Moshe that this was meant to pay the Israelites back for their slave labor. And of course, this is how the angels fulfill the divine promise of bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, Bilchush Gadol, with much property. But even more importantly, what is Mastema's role in this passage? Here, Masnema would actually, if he were free, play the role of the divine court's adversary, the Satan, by accusing the Israelites for stealing, right? They, they bind him so he won't accuse the Israelites while they're borrowing these goods. Who would he accuse them to? to God, because God is fair, right? And so the Israelites should be punished. So the angels tie Mastema up. But it is important to note that here, rather than just punishing the wicked, it really sounds like Mastema is parallel to the function of the heavenly court adversary, the Satan. He's supposed to accuse people who do wrong, even if really they're righteous, right? He, he wants to either possibly entrap them even, now, in this episode, Mastema does not seem like much of a threat. Angels tie him up, release him when he's going to do something that they want, and then they tie him up again. But the main passages in which Mastema appears, he does seem to be a threat. Sometimes the physical well-being of the righteous, but also to, uh, but also in terms of causing them to sin. So let's take a look. Now, we're going to go back. Now, we're going to go back to Noah and go through um, Avraham 
to Yaakov, let's say, uh, all the stuff that happens before the episodes we're just talking about with Moshe and the Israelites. So following the episode where the Watcher spirit descendants are subordinated to Mastema, right after he's introduced in Jubilee's 10, Noah's children begin to sin. So this is Jubilee's 11. Uh, during this Jubilee, I'm reading now, during this Jubilee, Noah's children began to fight one another, to take captives and to kill one another, to shed human blood on the earth, to consume blood. Uh, if you'll remember from the Watchers episode, that they were specifically told not to consume blood and that that commandment would kind of save them from the Watchers, from Watchers influence. Um, to build fortified cities, walls, and towers, men to elevate themselves over peoples, to set up the first kingdoms, to go to war, people against people, nations against nations, city against city, and everyone to do evil, to acquire weapons, and to teach warfare to their sons. City began to capture city and to sell male and female slaves. Note that they're consuming blood. So this is against the commandment to Noah and his descendants following the flood. And while we find this commandment to Noah in the Hebrew Bible, of course, when it's repeated in Jubilees, it's explained again that by following this commandment, Noah's children can avoid sin. So remember what I told you in previous episodes about the idea that was very popular in the Second Temple period, that having the law is a metaphysical shield, as it were, against sin. So that, that idea is part of that, that you were given this commandment not to consume blood, that's going to protect you against sin. Here they're consuming blood and everything falls apart. So as the passage continues, the narrator explains that Noah's children also made idols with the help of spirits. So I'm reading from 11.4. They made molten images from them, for themselves. Each one would worship the idol which he had made as his own molten image. They began to make statues, images, and unclean things. The spirits of the savage ones were helping and misleading them so that they would commit sins, impurities, and transgressions. So here we have the spirits of the savage ones, that is, those spirits that came out of the giants, the children of the watchers. But these spirits only get involved after Noah's descendants begin to sin. They're already eating blood and doing violence, and only afterwards is there any demonic influence. So the spirits entrap Noah's children in their own sin. I'm going to come back to this a bit later. Now, only after this description of what the spirits are doing... Does the narrator explain that it is Mastema who is actually holding the reins? So in Jubilees 11.5, it says, Prince Mastema was exerting his power in effecting all these actions. And by means of the spirits, he was sending to those who are placed under his control the ability to commit every kind of error and sin and every kind of transgression to corrupt, to destroy, and to shed blood on the earth. The spirits' activities are defined clearly in this verse. They corrupt, cause sin, destroy, cause physical harm, and shed blood. In the direct and foreseen consequence of the bloodshed of Noah's children, and Noah predicted this in Jubilee 7, when he, when, uh, when he was discussing the Watchers. But in the structure of this passage, the order of events is very clear. First, Noah's descent in sin. Then, the evil spirits get involved and make it worse. Then it becomes clear that it is Mastema who controls the evil spirits and he makes it even worse. So in this passage, people don't get off scot-free. They can't blame all their sins on either the spirits or Mastema. The lion's share of the blame rests on Noah's children. Demonic influence isn't really the sole source of sin. It intensifies the human choice to sin. It makes it snowball, makes it even worse. 
Okay. Now, Masima is not done after this little episode. In Jubilee's 11.11, he causes a famine, and that's halted by Avram. In Jubilee 17.16, and I'm giving you the chapters and verse numbers so you can look it up yourselves later. Uh, in Jubilee 17.16, uh, Mastemat takes on the role of the Satan in Job. Namely, he urges God to test Avraham's loyalty by commanding the sacrifice of Yitzchak. Uh, and I'm reading now from 1716. Then Prince Mastemat came and said before God, Avraham does indeed love his son Yitzchak and finds him more pleasing than anyone else. Tell him to offer him as a sacrifice on an altar. Then you will see whether he performs this order and will know whether he is faithful in everything through which you test him. Now, this is how the author of Jubilees solves the theological puzzle that's presented by Genesis 22.1, by Breshit Chafbet Aleph, where God tests Nisa, Avraham, for no apparent reason. In other words, the, um, the sacrifice of Yitzchak or the binding of Yitzchak is presented as a test. There's never any reason given in the Bible for why God thought such a test was needed. Now, here, this aspect of Mastema's role in the binding of Yitzchak, we could say, depends on his status within the divine court. In Jubilees 18.9, the angel of the presence, who is narrating the story, describes himself standing in front of God and Mastema when God orders the angel to stop the sacrifice. And he describes God's command to stop the sacrifice as, quote, putting Mastema to shame, end quote. So it's clear that Mastema really just wants Yitzchak dead, right? That's what he's rooting for. He, he really just wants to kind of cause problems for righteous people. Now, despite the shaming of Mastema in this episode, he continues to be part of the divine system, and he's a thorn in the sides of all of Avraham's descendants. When Avraham blesses his grandson Yaakov in Jubilees 19, this is what he says. Okay, listen closely. May the spirits of Mastema not rule over you and your descendants to remove you from following the Lord who is your God from now and forever. May the Lord God become your father and you his firstborn son and people for all time. Go in peace, my son. Here, the role of Masema's spirits is clear. They cause humans to stop following God. But does this blessing succeed in freeing the descendants of Yaakov from the sin-causing power of Masema's spirits? And that's the question. So if we look at the continuation of the book of Jubilees, right, and think of the Moshe and Exodus passages we discussed in the beginning of this episode, Masema is still a threat, but not because of his ability to cause Israel to sin. In fact, in Jubilees, after Avraham blesses Yaakov, that the spirits of Masema not rule over him and his descendants, the possibility that Masema might cause the Israelites to sin is not mentioned again. The blessing, the bracha, might imply that while Mastema can cause physical harm against the children of Israel, following Avram's blessing, he will have no power to make them sin. But he can still, for example, cause the Egyptians to sin. Um, he, he, he hardens their hearts, etc. So it, now, that's my interpretation. You could say, well, it just has, so happens in the rest of the book, Mastema doesn't cause them to sin. But it's if we look at the if we do look at the book as a whole, we can at least say that that does see this blessing does seem to be the end of Mastema's ability, even through his spirits, to cause the descendants of Israel to sin, at least within the book.
Now, it could be that Avram's naming Israel the firstborn of God at the end of this blessing is linked to the idea that Israel is not ruled by spirits. This is similar to the declaration in Jubilees 15, verses 30 to 32, that God shows only Israel and that while, quote, he made spirits rule over all nations in order to lead them astray from following him, end quote, over Israel, quote, he made no angel or spirit rule because he alone is their ruler, end quote. But in Avram's blessing, there's no particular distinction between the other nations in Israel. And God is not contrasted directly with the evil spirits. What there is, is an implicit connection between Israel's freedom from demons and Israel's special relationship with God. Now, note that when we talk about sin causing in Jubilees, we're more likely to talk about Mastema's spirits than Mastema himself. He spends more time trying to cause physical harm against Moshe, against Avram, against Yitzchak, than directly causing sin. And that doesn't stop with Avram's blessing. The, the attempts to cause physical harm, those continue. Okay, so what can we conclude about Mastema? I think you guys understand what I mean now about the inconsistency of characters in ancient texts. Sometimes Mastema causes sin, usually through his spirits. Sometimes he tries to harm the righteous. Sometimes he fulfills the role of the Satan as a heavenly adversary who can accuse people before God or can suggest that God test someone. But his job that is stated at the outset of punishing the wicked doesn't really happen in the rest of the book. But it seems to me that one of the things the author of the Book of Jubilees is trying to accomplish is to show how Mastema's ability to cause sin among the Jews. And remember, this book is written with a Jewish audience in mind. It's written in Hebrew to Jews. So what the author wants to tell them is that Mastema's ability to cause sin among them is limited by Avram's blessing, even if Mastema remains a physical threat. So they shouldn't feel helpless in preventing sin. Mastema perhaps had power in the past, but Avram's blessing is protecting them. And also remember that account where the sin-causing ability of Mastema and his spirits is really that of enhancing sin that's already happening. So you should learn not to give demonic influence anything to work with, as it were. Our analysis of satanic figures is going to continue in our next episode with a look at Blial in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the first chapter of Jubilees. And we're also going to take a look at some really short mentions of Mastema in the Dead Sea Scrolls and kind of ask why the community used Blial and not Mastema as their main villain. And we'll see that Blial has a very specific role. So thank you for joining me. Please feel free to comment on this episode at my blog on understandingsin.com. You can also comment on my Facebook page, which is also called Understanding Sin and Evil. I'd love to hear from you. So please keep the comments and questions coming. And thanks for joining me. I look forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.